Matthew 26 is where we're going to be um, for the majority of our time, really all of our time. It's a rich, um, rich, 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 rich passage. And so um, welcome. Hi, if this is your first time here. Um, we're glad that you could come and spend uh, this holiday season with us. We know um, that the holiday season produces a lot of things at different parts. Some of us are super excited. Some of us are, 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 are mourning and we're remembering and we're reflecting and we're thinking about the people who who aren't following us into the new year. And for that, we say we understand and there's shoulders uh, to cry on, there's arms to hold up, and there's tears uh, to cry alongside you. That is the promise of the body. That's the promise of the church. That's the promise of Jesus. And so in this season, there's a lot swirling out there. Um, you know, travel happens, people are ghosts. Um, and and then, you know what, man? It's just cool to just be, especially like 2019 was a blur, but it's like, yeah, it's ending. <laughs> and it's like, cool, we get to exist in this moment together. Um, a lot to say. We're in this season of generosity all around us, Christian, non-Christian. Um, it's a season where we do a lot, where we give a lot, where season's greetings, happy holidays. Some people feel like they need to rescue Christmas and it's a thing and I'm like, okay, whatever, cool, maybe. Um, but for us, what we said is that as we are winding down this season in the life of our church and we are stepping into another season, what has marked both where we are coming from and where we are going is the generosity and kindness of God. And when God is generous, it's not just for us, it's for, it's for others. And so what we said is, man, let's wind down this year and let's kind of look at this unique relationship between generosity and joy and start to deal with stuff that may make us a little bit uncomfortable, uh, specifically looking at some of the financial dynamics of generosity. Um, and, you know, when you're in Miami or in any, really any state, or if you're a pastor, this is like the cringe time because it's like, oh, man, this is people are waiting for you to talk about um, money to some degree. But, man, this isn't cringeworthy per se. Um, this is a moment where it really could be catalytic to greater experiences of joy. And that, that's, man, hear nothing else. We're after joy. Even as we close, we're going to close with a plea, and the plea is for joy. Um, I need to say something, though, because I think the text brings this out in our, our current cultural moment. Our season kind of amplifies this a little bit as well. Um, there is a difference. I mentioned it last week. I want to say it again. There's a difference between philanthropy and biblical generosity. They aren't, they, aren't, they aren't the same. They, they, they coincide, but they're, but they're not the same. And, and if we confuse them, we will lose out on something beautiful. But it's easy to confuse it. Let me give you an illustration. I'm not really sure if this is going to go over well. So, you know, just tell me later. Like, don't tell me now, but tell me uh, later. First year of marriage, I was foolish. I was young and foolish. And so um, what happens if, you know, you're a newlywed, you try and set up the future the way that you want it to be. So you do all this extra stuff in the beginning, stuff that you really have no plan to do year 10. You're like, oh, yeah, that was year one, not year 10. Um, but um, my wife, she is, she is amazing. And so uh, year, year one of our marriage, like, you know, she, she would just set up this environment. And I remember, I used to work long hours, yeah. Like, I mean, and I would, I would drive from Think Homestead to Miramar. Like, and I was, yeah, 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 you can, yes. And so I would make that drive 
with traffic five days a week. It was horrendous, you know, for my scars. But um, so I would get home tired, and I was working this job that was. Anyway, so I would get home tired, and and I remember um, one of these nights, like I got home, and I mean I walked in. We were staying with um, my wife's aunt um, in her basement. We were poor, poor, like we didn't have the R, just the O O apostrophe, um, yeah, and like. I walked into the basement, and like there was this soft music playing, you know, there was these candles, there was this scent, and that's how Serenity was born, right? It was like, that's serious, okay? Yeah, amen. Week later, same day, long day, I walk in, there was this soft music playing, there was these candles, and there was this scent. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. In fact, she was just chilling and reading her Bible. I was like, that's not, like, I got set up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I thought, you know, like, soft music, candles, nice aroma, faith. Like, that's what I thought. It was like, no, not all the time. Right? Does that make sense? But the atmosphere was so similar, but then what I experienced was extremely different. You tracking with me? We, okay, they go over well. You know, I was nervous. I was like, is that going to make sense? Let me make it make more sense. Let me land it. And so like, from about November to now, there's an atmosphere of giving all around us. People are super charitable. It's not the same as biblical generosity. And so you can engage in some level of philanthropy because of the atmosphere, but you will miss out on what biblical generosity offers, which is joy. What we stated last week and what we will stay every week until this series is over and beyond is that God calls us to generosity, not because he primarily wants something from us, but because he wants something for us, joy. That he, he doesn't need anything. He, he's not impotent. He's strong. And so he's not trying to get money out of our pockets. If anything, he's trying to get idols out of our hearts that keep us from joy. And so through the course of this series and through the course of today, when, when it may seem like, oh, yeah, this, this kind of sounds like, like just be a better human. Just be more more into philanthropy, like, you know, just, just do that stuff. It's like, no, 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 there's something else here. And this act by this woman gives us insight into the nature of generosity and joy. And so that's going to be the flow of our time is we're really going to look at this passage. Jesus makes some pretty, pretty amazing statements in here. He makes two powerful ones. One is what is more peculiar? The other is astonishing, but it's gonna, we're going to start off and look at this peculiar statement that Jesus uses to start this passage off and then this act that she makes, and then we'll close with another astonishing statement that Jesus makes and some questions it causes us to wrestle with. Um, Matthew 26, it reads like this, verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. Um, and she poured it out on his head and as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you have always, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's a lot. It's super layered. Let, let's get to work. So let me get some context to this. This is Jesus in the final days of his earthly life. Already entered into Jerusalem, knowing he's going to die. Knowing the next time he leaves this city that crucifies prophets, stones them, kills their own. The next time he leaves this city is going to be ascending into heaven. He knows what's coming. He's aware of Isaiah. It's, it's sung in this season often. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is given. Isaiah 9, can I read it? I like it. He, it, it, it reads like this. Unto us a child is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. He was born for a reason. And the culmination of that reason is also found in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Surely... He, this child, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That this child born came into being to die. And we are at this moment where death is coming. This is the atmosphere. There's so much drama in this passage. All the Gospels have some of the scenes, specifically Mark, Matthew, and John. This final moment where, where Jesus is amongst friends because he's going to die. And I like this about Jesus because he, he, he doesn't moonwalk into this moment. He doesn't walk backwards into it. He doesn't try to avoid it. He goes face first into his death. That's faith. Crawling to the finish line. Running to meet it. He's about to die. So, so, so this is the atmosphere. It's a very sober yet joyous time. And in the midst of this, one of his disciples, this woman, comes to him. And she's in his, and she, he's in her house. He, so she comes to him and breaks open this super expensive bottle of oil and perfume. So I, I grew up in an era uh, with Curve. 
Anybody remember Curves? Like, it just had that lingering smell, uh, but it was like $19 from like Macy's. It was, this is a curve. This is that good stuff, all right? This is that real, real, that extra stuff. It, it's a, a year's worth of wages is what the scripture says. That's your retirement package. What you put away for a rainy day in case you lose your job. She comes to him and she breaks all of that open on him and starts to anoint him, knowing full well what she's doing. But before we get to the act, there's a statement that Jesus makes because the disciples, the rest of the disciples, this whole scene is kind of weird. People are like, yo, what are you doing? That's a waste. That's a waste. And and if you look at it from John's angle, uh, when John documents this scene, he says that the, the, the disciple, the one that criticizes her the most is actually Judas. But he criticizes her because he, he really didn't care about the poor. It's because he used to steal from Jesus. He used to steal the money. So, but, but nevertheless, there's, there are some of them who are confused. They're like, wait a second. Like, the gospel, I, re- I remember you, Jesus, that when you got into the temple, you began your earthly ministry. You said, the spirit of God is on me to preach the good news to the poor, set the captives free. And so there is a lean towards the vulnerable in the experience of the kingdom. Yet... This year's worth of wages wasn't deployed for them. It was broken to wipe your body. That's weird. Especially when even last week we said that God's design for for money, resources, is to further our joy when used appropriately and further his mission when given generously. This seems contradictory. That, That you would you would break open a year's worth of wages to just wipe his feet and wash his hair to give him a bath when a year's worth of wages could feed thousands. When Jesus says, wait a second, don't trouble her. Don't trouble her. Because he knows what she's doing as well. But he makes this peculiar statement. You're always going to have the poor. Now, that may seem a little insensitive. No, Jesus, that's kind of messed up. But it's a truth he holds in tension. You will always have the poor this side of eternity because poverty isn't a disease. It's a symptom. Okay? It's a symptom of a broken, fallen, fractured world that's tainted with misery where people use other people as stepping stones for success. It's a symptom. It's not a disease. And it is a symptom of a disease that Jesus is going to deal with fully and finally. Revelation brings this out. In Revelation, it reads like this. Revelation 21, 6, it says, and he said to, to me, it is done. End of ages, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give for the spring of water of life without payment. There's going to come a time when there's no more poor because there's no more use for currency. Poverty is not a disease. It's a symptom of something else. 
I, I feel like I have to stress that for several reasons. The first reason is we're in like political season as well. So holiday season is political season, especially like in a political uh, year. And, and what happens is you'll just see that every person who's running from some type of government and every party will co-opt Jesus and the Bible to prove a point. And so it's like, oh, yeah, you see how the Bible speaks to socialism? See the, And you see how the Bible speaks to capital? And it's like, no, no, the scriptures don't speak to those in the way we think they do. It doesn't affirm a governmental system apart from the kingdom of God. And, 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 and so this isn't a statement of Jesus' insensitivity or even a statement of, yeah, man, there's always going to be poor there, so we don't even need to worry about them. Not at all. He's actually bringing out this dangerous truth which is that the world is broken. It's dangerous because once you accept that, it forces you to deal with reality. What are you going to do about the brokenness? And it's going to lead to even greater truth, which is a statement regarding generosity that he's making through her making this tremendous act. But again, let me say this. That's one reason is just so we can make sure that he, we don't see him as insensitive. But there's a supplemental reason, and it was really tied to last week. Poverty is it a disease, it's a symptom, which also means wealth isn't a cure, it's a cover. Like wealth isn't the cure-all for the world that we live in. In fact, we will be seduced into believing that, that if I just get more, finally, I'll be good. But that type of seduction into wealth, which is what Timothy brought out Last week, all it does is suffocate joy. Poverty isn't a disease, it's a symptom. Wealth isn't a cure, it's a cover. And there will come a day when a cure is fully experienced. And so there's this peculiar statement that he makes which starts to dismantle even when we think about philanthropy and generosity and how they go inside because really philanthropy is need-oriented. You see a need and you meet it. But Jesus right now is not pointing to this need being that. He's making a different statement regarding generosity. <laughs> Notice. Notice this. Um, in pouring this ointment, verse 12, on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. She did it fully aware of what was coming. One of the frustrations that like I personally have in reading some commentaries and things like that whenever you study is the way that we tend to read some cultural predispositions into the scriptures. And we have a way of assigning ignorance to this woman, Mary. As almost as if she didn't know what she was doing. Like it was some random arbitrary act of kindness. That's not the way we understand Mary in the Gospels. And really, one of the themes of the Gospels is that you have this tension between the people who should get it that don't and the people who have no business getting it that do. You also have this tension of those who are, quote unquote, marginalized, put, pushed to the outskirts, being pushed to the centers as champions of something necessary, champions of life. And so you see this where Jesus, he looks at this one centurion soldier, this Gentile, non-Jewish soldier, has no business understanding the deeper things of God. 
Yet his servant is sick. He sends word to Jesus. Jesus makes his way towards his house. This dude sends another servant to stop him and say, wait a second, Jesus. I know that you're a man of repute and you're a man of authority. So am I. And so you don't have to come into my house because I'm a man of authority. When I tell one servant to go do something, it gets done. And you have authority over all Jesus. So just speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus is like, yeah, I ain't seen faith like this even amongst the Jewish people. Then you have this, this woman, blood disease for ages, forgotten, pushed to the side. Because not only is she a woman marginalized, but she's an elderly woman, further marginalized. Yet, in the midst of all of the crowds surrounding Jesus, she has this idea in her mind that if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. That, that it's, it's not necessarily just you touching me, but it's me touching you and holding on to you and that you have more power in your pinky. And she does it. And Jesus feels the power go from him. He's like, who's touched me? And people are like, yo, like everybody's touching you. We're in a crowd. And he's like, "Mm -mm. somebody touched me in faith. They understand the nature of faith that it goes out on a limb. They got to get it. This marginalized woman. And even Mary. Mary in Luke 10 sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha is busy and all the other disciples are arguing. She's sitting, learning, learning. So when it's time for Jesus to make his triumphal entry and head to the cross, she's like, I know it's coming because I've been sitting there fully aware. Notice that ignorance to her. She's fully aware of what she is doing. Yet, She is doing it willingly. She is giving of herself completely. (coughs) Generosity always and eventually becomes a value statement. It's a statement of value. It's an exposing statement. And, And here's what I know that you know, that this is bringing out regard to the nature of generosity. You know that there's some gifts that are priceless because of the statements that they make and not their inherent cost. So, I'm going to use my wife again. Um, this time I'm going to use her in a better light because I feel like I kind of threw her under the bus with her fake setup situation. So let me just redeem you. You're welcome. All right. First year of marriage. Did I say I was foolish my first year of marriage? Let me tell you why I'm saying this. Because if you have gotten past year one, there's hope, guys. Let me, just, let me just love you. Like, don't check out. Don't give up. There's hope, all right? So year one... Of marriage, I grew up um, like Poe. So I got married and we was Poe with three O's. When I grew up, we was Poe with one, like an apostrophe, Poe Poe. And so I had like this hustler's mentality, like let's just get it how we live. Let's just take a dollar and turn it to 500, even though it was never really 500, let's stop selling stuff. And so I just, that's just how my mind worked. And now, Diamond and me, we got married. We moved to this city to go start a church um, to help with this church plant. Um, and I was coming on staff to be a pastor. Um, and, you know, we're in Atlanta. And in Atlanta, there's like mega churches everywhere. I mean, there's like monuments on every block. 
And most of these mega churches, I'm not going to assign this to everybody, but most of them, they have this message of wealth and health. And so it's if you do this, if you give this, then God is going to bless you. God is really going to love you. You need to be faithful here, blah, blah, blah. And what would that would happen is people would just be completely turned off by the church. Most of them would ride up, I'm not even going to say, because that's even here, that's everywhere, because people are wicked. We're all frail, and the cares of the world run rampant in everybody's heart. We are all seduced by riches and wealth. But most of them will pull up with Bentley show. I mean, I was like, Maybach music. It was like, it was a very interesting scene. And so, Diamond, um, after we got married, her father gave her a Jag. We called it Bruce. 2001 Jaguar S-Type. Now, I was like, man, I'm a pastor. I don't know about that one. I'm going to be going out here raising money, telling people to come support our church, come support me, and I'm going to pull up to these meetings in a jab. And so, like, there was some, like, insecurity that came to me, so I was like, I got this great idea. Here's what we're going to do, Diamond. We're going to sell this Jaguar, and as we get, you know where this was. We're going to sell this Jaguar, we're going to take the money that we get from selling this, and we're going to knock out some debt, because that's good stewardship. You know what I'm saying? Then we're going to pay for school, and then we're going to buy this cash car that end up lasting, this Saturn view, and it lasts, and it die. But it's like, damn, we're going to do that. And she looked me in the eyes, and they were welling up, and she was like, okay. Yeah, oh, I ruined um. I didn't find out how mad she was about that until like five years later. We were doing premarital with a couple, and I was talking about, damn, marriage, you gotta leave, blah, 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 you gotta know each other, and man, I just, you probably should have you know, waited to sell that, and then it all came out. I was like, oh my gosh, like, that really did a number to you. But the reason was not because of the price of the job, but because of her dad. Like, like Diamond's dad in her life, oh my, like he is, he is father, he was pastor, he was businessman, he was friend, he was all of this. And he was a hustler too. And so he didn't pay what we sold that dad for. But he worked and he hustled and he grinded and he fixed it up. And so, so the jag, it, it didn't represent a dollar amount, it represented his hard work and service. There's some gifts, and you notice, that that they're priceless not because of what they cost, but because of the statements that they make. Biblically, there are, there, there are gifts that, are, that can do good in the world, and there are other gifts that are priceless because of the statements that they make regarding the hearts of the giver and what they believe in God. She's doing this, and we have another example of someone doing this as well. Second Samuel 24, you have David, King David, who's just committed a grievous sin at the start of 2 Samuel 24. He measures his army. He smells himself. He measures his strength. How many mighty men, fighting soldiers do I have? Whenever you want to see if you are a wise king or you are a fool king or you are a prosperous king, you would measure your harem, how many women you can have. And you would measure the size of your army, and then you measure your treasury. They who be in a king like the nations instead of a king like the Lord measures his army. It's wicked, it's sinful. People know it. David eventually knows it. He repents. God, what must I do so my people don't suffer because of my wickedness? 
He's like, well, you, you build an altar and you offer some sacrifices to me. And so David goes to, to this field where, where God told him to go build an altar and it was owned by a man named Arna. And, and, and Arna was, was a subject in his kingdom. And, and he looks at King David. David says, man, I've come to build an altar for the Lord to make sacrifices in my land and whatever else you need. You need, you need the bulls for the sacrifice. You can have that too. And David makes a powerful statement, 2 Samuel 24, 24. When Arunah says that, David says no. He says no. I will not offer unto God that which costs me nothing. Because he knows that there's certain statements that are made by generosity. David got it. She got it. Notice what's being said about her heart. If you trace her story, grace has intersected her in several ways. Simon the leper, it's her house. So either Simon is a relative, close brother, father, or a friend, because he's there. She's seen somebody close to her experience the grace of God. She experienced it as well. Furthermore, her brother was Lazarus, who died. John 11, Lazarus died. Jesus rose him from the dead. It was such a dramatic, powerful scene that the Jewish contingent that wanted Jesus dead wanted to kill Lazarus too. They're like, we're going to kill him as well because people are believing Jesus because of him. This miraculous scene. Her brother who was dead brought back to life. Grace has intersected her. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, she knows the stories. You're the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Grace has intersected her. And this statement of pouring out what is valuable to me for you means grace has freed me. And love has compelled me. Joy is mine for taking. Grace has intersected her. And she's doing something Tremendous. This is 2 Corinthians 8, where this poor church community, because grace has intersected them, they give above and beyond. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for a severe test of infliction. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. But begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us, grace intersected them. Grace freed them, love compelled them, and joy was theirs for the taking. Statements that she's making about her own heart but she's making some statements about Jesus as well, value statements of God. The first is Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. What would you exchange your life savings for? Only that which you deem is worthy. You know what I mean? Parents close out their 401k to send their kids to school. My dad did it. Not for me, because I was an oldest son. Let me just say that. <laughs> I had to grind for that. Hell grants and scholarships, baby. You know what I mean? But he did it nonetheless. 
Because he thought my older brother was worthy. Is it? So the statement she's making about God is, Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy of this act, my savings, and then me serving you. She's making two statements that are really two sides of the same coin. The first is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And here's why she's making that statement. Because she's giving everything. But she still has everything. Because she has Jesus. The supplementary statement to that is that Jesus or everything minus Jesus equals nothing. It's good math. Biblical math right there. Because if Jesus plus nothing equals everything, if you remove Jesus, you have nothing at all. She's making this statement. Jesus sees this statement and he makes another statement in light of it. He says, what she has done will echo forever. It will be tied to the gospel. Why? Why will this act of emptying be tied to the gospel? Because the gospel is the greatest statement of generosity in human history. To, to be born, to suffer, and die for someone else. To, to sacrifice, which is an act of love, that sacrifice. To give up what you love to gain what you love most or more. And this is Jesus. I will give up comfort. I will give up a chorus of angels saying holy, holy, holy. I will exchange that for a crowd saying crucify. Get yourself off this cross, Jesus. Save yourself. I'll give that up. Because I love you more than my comfort. Sacrifice. That her act of sacrifice is a shadow of this greater act of sacrifice and generosity. The cross. That as she broke this body, this this flask with life inside, perfume, Jesus did the same. Forever. Learning from her. I want to close by calling us to sit with that. That's to me, I've been sitting with it for some time now. Last week, definitively, and, and I'm just like, that she looked at her life and said nothing about limits. Here you go. That, Jesus, you're getting ready to die. That these are your last moments on earth. And as you are walking in these final days, would this perfume be a lingering scent that reminds you how much I care and appreciate and value what's getting ready to take place. And Jesus, going to a cross, said this supreme act of generosity was for joy, Hebrews 12. Enduring, despising shame for the joy set before him. 
And I'm just like, man, if I am not experiencing joy in my life, might it be because I'm not as generous as God would intend me to be? If there is this inseparable link between generosity and joy, then when joy is absent, I must look at my generosity. I have to examine there. I can't put that off the table and say, well, it's just all of these circumstances. No, I, I got to go there as well. And, and, and say, am, am I being seduced in a way where I'm holding on, I'm clinging to, as opposed to being free? Because notice what happens here. She, she is not giving based on a need. That's not what's taking place. She's giving based on a heart. It's biblical generosity. It's, it's, it's a shift. Not giving to, but giving from. Heart. Two questions. First, what are the sacrifices that I'm making telling me about the life I'm pursuing? This is a simple question. The next is over the last year, what statements are my financial generosity making about my belief in God? It's a little bit more of a troubling question. Faith crawls to the finish line, guys. This is a season where it's very easy to just kind of get tired for so many people because of life and the blur of 2019. And some of us are like, I'm just ready to get over it. But faith crawls, it runs, it faces, it keeps going, it endures, it scratches, it crawls, it fights. And there's a joy that's worth faith and believing and clawing and scratching and running and crawling into the finish line. Oh, we get it. But man, it often comes through generosity, through having our hands loosened from stuff <coughs> and having our hands tightened on Jesus. So please, here's the plea. Do not neglect the joy that comes from gaining by losing. The joy that is tied to losing something, but you gain something better. Let's pray. Jesus. Yeah, I pray. I pray that we would not neglect that by being bombarded by the truth that you modeled and secured a life of joy. That you gave functionally homeless a place to rest your head. That you gave that the bumper sticker scripture for Christianity, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. God, would you bombard us with robust pictures of you and stories like this one of this humble, grace-oriented woman who gave. She gained. She gained greater experiences of you 
greater experiences of joy. It's in front of us. It's for the taking. Give us strength. Give us courage. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.